News anchor man Brandon Brooks worked for a television station in Pennsylvania. He was hosting a segment one night on how to protect your house against burglars. He chose to use his own house as a demonstration. Well, Brandon walked through all of the security precautions that he had personally installed in his house. But what he didn't realize is that there were burglars watching his program. Throughout the newscast, the burglars learned of the house's floor plan, its security features, even the location of his valuables. And so a couple of nights later, while Brandon Brooks was on the air, the thieves broke into his house and cleaned him out. You know, the Bible teaches us that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Life on earth will be interrupted. It won't be business as usual forever, trust me. God will have a say in human affairs. History is his story. Jesus has the final word, and guess what? He knows where we live. He has the layout of our lives. Are we ready for his return? You see, the rapture has but one departure time. There are no later flights. Let's all make sure that we're ready. Well, here in this chapter, Jesus has been debating in the temple. You remember the Pharisees and Sadducees, they've tried to trap Jesus in their theological snares. But when you try to match wits with the master, you end up the dimwit. Jesus had outfoxed the trappers and the Jews were left wiping egg off their faces. It was a devastating day for Jerusalem and for Ju Ju Judaism. The die had been cast. The nation's leaders had formally rejected Jesus. The fig tree, that ancient symbol of Israel, of Judaism, had been cursed and had withered away. Jesus predicted that God's vineyard would be taken from the Jews and given to the church. And since the Jewish leaders had rejected Jesus as their Messiah, the future of Judaism looked bleak. And yet the disciples were not ready to give up on their Jewish heritage. They still saw a lot of good left in Judaism. And that's their thinking as they exit the temple here in Mark chapter 13, verse 1. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Jesus and his disciples now are east of the temple. They're headed up the Mount of Olives back to Bethany where they've been staying. The top of the mountain is 150 feet above the city. And from the peak of the Mount of Olives, you get this jaw-dropping, panoramic view of Jerusalem. And of course, the scenic centerpiece was the temple, sparkling in the sunshine. The Jewish temple had been rebuilt by Zerubbabel and had been refurbished by King Herod. The renovations had taken 46 years. Herod had invested vast wealth to transform the temple into one of the wonders of the ancient world. Josephus, that Jewish historian that we rely on for details at this, in this period of history, he wrote of the temple as follows. The exterior of the building lacked nothing. It astounded both mind and eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. 
to approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was purest white. Today, you can see the stones, the huge stones used to construct the retaining wall around the Temple Mount, some of them of the size of railroad boxcars. The construction of the temple was indeed an engineering marvel. Herod's temple was a source of pride and patriotism for all Jews. And now as the disciples leave Jerusalem, they look back on this magnificent structure and they essentially say to Jesus, Cheer up, Lord. All is not wrong with Judaism. Just look at this incredible temple. But verse 2, Jesus answered and said to them, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. What a shocking response. Jesus is saying, the source of your pride is about to be pillaged and pulled to the ground. And that is exactly what happened. Forty years after Jesus uttered these words, the Roman general Titus brought his legions against Jerusalem to end the Jewish revolt. When he captured Jerusalem, the remaining Jewish dissidents, they held out in the temple. Titus didn't want to destroy the structure. And so he ordered his troops to wait until hunger forced a Jewish surrender. But one of the soldiers disobeyed the general's command, and he threw a torch into the temple. The heat from the fire was so intense that the temple's golden plates that we just read that Josephus mentioned, these golden plates melted, and the liquid gold ran down into the crevices between the stones. The greedy Roman soldiers toppled the stones to retrieve the gold, Fulfilling Jesus' prophecy here, not one stone shall be left upon another. Judaism had become spiritually bankrupt, and God brings them to foreclosure. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Now here Jesus answers the longest he gave, the longest, the longest answer of any question that he was ever asked. He answers this question. He's on the Mount of Olives, and what follows is what we call the Olivet Discourse. And in it, Jesus gives us signs of the second coming and the end of the age. You see, Jesus knew of the destruction of Jerusalem. He knew it would occur in 70 A.D., And it would be the first of many military campaigns against the holy city of Jerusalem. In fact, in Revelation 19, when Jesus returns to earth, it happens again. His return is in response to a battle over Jerusalem. And the temple's destruction in 70 AD stirred Jesus' thinking about these end times events. And that's what he begins to unpack here. Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will deceive many. Now prior to Jesus' first coming, there was a great messianic expectancy. Everyone was expecting God to send this great deliverer. Yet there were no pretenders, there were no false Christs. Why? Well, there were no counterfeit messiahs before Jesus for the same reason there's no such thing as a counterfeit $200 bill. You can't counterfeit something that's never existed. 
You see, the real thing has to come before you can copy it. But after Jesus, there has now been a long train of false Christs. Historians say that in the century after Jesus, no less than 64 men claimed to be the Messiah. Even in our day, there have been many false messiahs. And here Jesus warns us to expect counterfeit Christs. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. Jesus says wars and rumors of wars will be commonplace. Historian Will Durant, he calculates that in the last 3,400 years of history, there have been only 268 years without war. That over the last three and a half millenniums, there's been a war in the world 92% of the time. You know, it's interesting, whenever a new war erupts, people get antsy. Even Christians get eager. They ask, is this the war to end all wars? Wow, is Jesus coming back now? Here Jesus is telling us, chill out. A new war is no big deal. As long as sinful, greedy men are in charge, there'll be constant conflict between nations. War is a given. It's when you see an escalation, verse 8, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. See, wars are no big deal, just standard fare, you might say. But there are signs that alert us to when God is turning up the heat, when judgment is imminent. First is the escalation of warfare. War on a global scale, you could say. You know, it took 6,000 years to produce our first world war. Now we've had two. And many people think we're on the brink of a third. Today there are 65 million regular and reserve soldiers in all the Earth's armies. 65 million. And they're armed to the teeth. Several years ago, I read where there was the equivalent of 40 tons of TNT for every person on the planet. That's a lot of firepower. Warfare and conflict is intensifying. And it's what Jesus said would signal the beginning of the end. This Greek word that's translated sorrow, it means labor pangs. He's saying here as an increase in the frequency and force of a woman's contraction signals the birth of her child. These signs, the intensification of these things, indicates the end of the age and the return of Jesus. Other early warning signals include earthquakes in various places, he says, famines and troubles. Wow, we've just endured one of the worst hurricane seasons in years. Talk about troubles. Add to the devastating storms, the earthquakes in Mexico and Iraq just in the last few months. Did you know that in the last 60 years, earthquakes around the world have grown in frequency and intensity? And famine. Today, every 10 seconds in this world, a child starves to death. Every 10 seconds. Can you imagine? Every day, 9,000 folks die from hunger. One out of nine people in the world is going to go to bed hungry tonight. When you see an increase of these global conflicts and earthquakes and famine, it's a wake-up call. The end isn't yet, but these things mark a beginning of sorrows. Verse 9, but watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, 
and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. Now remember, the Olivet Discourse was a private conversation addressed to Jesus' Jewish disciples. In verse 3, this rabbi is speaking to his followers, to Peter, to James, John, and Andrew. Jesus speaks to Jews about Jews. He says, watch out for yourselves. He warns them, you will be beaten in the synagogues. Now, this is important. Gentile Christians didn't go to synagogues. Synagogues were Jewish places of worship. Here's the point. Mark 13 doesn't address the church. It speaks to Jewish believers who are alive after the church is raptured from the earth and Jews who are living on earth before Jesus returns. Remember the Bible predicts a final seven-year period of history that we call the Great Tribulation. Daniel 9, we studied that, gives specific landmarks that pinpoint the period that we call Great Tribulation. It begins when Israel signs a treaty with a Roman ruler. It ends when Jesus returns the second time. Today, Christians experience tribulation. This world wants to persecute the church. But in that day, that day yet future, a tribulation will come from God upon this wicked world. The tribulation will be a devastating time for planet Earth. Revelation 6 through 19 depicts cataclysmic judgments. And God's purpose for this time of great tribulation will be twofold. He will punish the wicked and he will purify the Jews. So an escalation of warfare and earthquakes and famines are all the beginnings of sorrows. But the tribulation period will be characterized by two other events. Verse 9 notes an increase here in anti-Semiticism. Particularly Jews who embrace Jesus and are loyal to God. They'll be brought before councils. They'll be beaten and persecuted. And then verse 10 tells us, And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Now I've heard folks use this verse to teach that before the church is raptured, that we're going to have to spread the gospel to every corner of the earth. But that's not its meaning. According to Revelation, after the church is raptured, an unprecedented revival will take place on the planet. God will use special means to spread the gospel. Once the world is raptured, God is going to resort to other means to get the gospel out. He's going to start with 144,000 supernaturally protected Jewish evangelists, special witnesses. Imagine 144,000 Billy Grahams let loose on planet Earth. That's what's going to happen. Along with them, two special witnesses will be raised from the dead in the streets of Jerusalem in front of the temple. In Revelation 14, an angel will fly through the sky proclaiming the everlasting gospel. In the tribulation, even without the church on earth, God will see to it that the gospel is preached in all the world. And where the gospel goes, folks get saved. But if you do come to faith in Jesus during this great tribulation, Jesus is warning you will be persecuted. Verse 11 warns Jewish believers at the time, but when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And I think we can apply this verse to believers today. 
God's Spirit always gives bold words to quivering lips. In a tight spot, you don't really know how you'll react. Sometimes we get caught off guard. But here Jesus promises us that when we're in that tight spot, the Holy Spirit will speak through us. If we trust him, the Holy Spirit will make us the witness that that we need to be in that moment. And that we'll say the words that need to be said. Now, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all men for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Again, this great tribulation will be a difficult time to follow Jesus. Persecution will become intense. Families will turn on one another. It'll be easy to fall away. Only those believers who maintain their faith until the end will be saved. Remember, the only escape from this terrible time is at its beginning, the rapture. Jesus is going to snatch up the church. He's going to catch us away. That's why it's best to give your life to Jesus now. Besides, if you can't live for Jesus today, how in the world are you going to live for him when it really gets tough? Well, in verse 14, Jesus continues to address Jews alive in the Great Tribulation. He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, Daniel 9 predicts that the last seven years of tribulation will be marked at its midpoint by a decisive event known as the abomination of desolation. Now, there were Jews living in Jesus' day who assumed this event had already taken place. You remember a Syrian tyrant, a man named Antiochus, had assaulted Israel and all things Jewish. Back in the period between the Testaments, Antiochus had slaughtered a pig on the temple altar. He had forced the Levitical priest to drink its blood and eat raw pork. He had smeared the rest of the foul blood on the walls of the temple and set up the statue of the Greek idol Zeus in the Holy of Holies. Terrible things he did. The Jews actually abandoned the temple for a time thereafter, for in their minds, this had been the abomination that had caused desolation. But this is not the event to which Jesus refers, for here he speaks of an abomination that is yet future. Apparently, what Antiochus did was a foreshadowing of the actions of a future Roman ruler. At the middle of the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist is going to break his covenant with Israel. He's going to enter the temple, and he's going to proclaim himself as God. And here Jesus issues the warning. When you see this happen, get out of Dodge. He says, flee to the mountains, run for your life. Again, Jesus isn't talking to Gentiles here. He's not talking to the church. He's talking to the Jews who will be alive at the time. He specifies, let those who are in Judea, who lives in Judea? Jews. He says, let them run for the wilderness. You remember in Isaiah 16, verse 1, we find a prediction that the Jews alive at the end of time will flee to the rock city of Petra. Petra is in the mountains east of the Dead Sea. And they'll hide out there until the tribulation is over. 
We had the opportunity to go to Petra on our last trip to Israel. It was quite amazing. You can go there, and of course, you see the famous treasury that was in the movie Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade. That's the spectacular thing. But beyond that, oh my, it's amazing what's in Petra. It's, a, it's, a, a, it's an incredible, vast, enormous fortress. If you visit Petra, you realize the enormity of the site, that there is there more than enough room to accommodate these future fleeing Jews. Well, Jesus continues his warning in verse 15. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And this, makes only, this only makes sense for Jews living in Jerusalem. In Israel, even today, people lounge on their rooftops. The rooftop in Israel is sort of like your back deck. It's kind of the place where you barbecue and hang out with friends and so forth. But it's on the rooftop. He's speaking to people in Jerusalem. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his garment. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. When the world turns on the Jews, the consequences will be severe. They'll flee to the desert as fast as possible. Verse 19. For in those days there will be a tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. After the global flood of Noah's day, God promised to never again judge the earth with water. That's what the rainbow reminds us of. Since that time, God has shown amazing restraint with our rebel planet. From time to time, from place to place, God judges specific nations. Sodom and Gomorrah, Babylon, the Canaanites. But these were isolated judgments. But the day is coming when God will once again punish on a global scale. This time, though, his judgments won't be with fire. I'm sorry, sorry won't be with water, but will be with fire. He's going to singe the globe. Revelation 8 says that a third of the earth will be scorched. You see, apparently there are limits to God's patience. Judgment is coming again. He says, and unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. If God doesn't limit this day of reckoning to three and a half years, all humanity will be annihilated. He says, but for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. There are New Testament verses that refer to the church as the elect. But we're not the only group given that title. In the Old Testament, the Jews were called the elect of God. Recall the purpose of the tribulation. It's to punish the wicked and to purify the Jews. The punishment would have no boundaries if not for the goal of purification. Thus, these incredible, cataclysmic, global judgments will be shortened. They'll be tempered. Not for the sake of the wicked, but in order to spare the Jews. Verse 21. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, here he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. The Bible teaches that the tribulation... During this time, a sinister figure will arise. He'll be the ultimate false Christ. The Bible calls him the Antichrist. 
He'll rule the world and claim to be its savior. Revelation 13 tells us that Satan gives him miraculous power to perform signs and wonders. He'll deceive even the Jews, even the elect will end up believing him. He'll be very convincing. And yet Jesus warned them in advance not to fall for his shenanigans. Well, verse 24 hits the fast forward button and describes how this great tribulational period will end. It says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in heaven will be shaken. Suddenly, outer space will become earth's enemy. This Greek word that's translated stars actually refers to any celestial object, a meteorite or an asteroid or a comet. And here we're told that stars will fall. I believe the final judgment just before Jesus returns is going to include cosmic projectiles that are going to strike this planet. This lines up with how Revelation 6 through 19 paints a picture. It's going to cause geological upheaval all across the globe. And don't think this idea is so far-fetched. As a matter of fact, it has happened before. Just survey the Earth's surface today. It's obvious that meteorites have peppered our planet. There are craters everywhere. It has happened before. And most astronomers believe that it will happen again. That really it's only a matter of time. For the last 30 years, Hollywood has depicted in the movies these kinds of cataclysmic events. Movies like Deep Impact and Armageddon have exploited this theme. Let me play a little bit for you. Hollywood depictions of what would happen when meteorites strike the planet, but trust me, it would be far worse. Incredible devastation will take place. Go back and read through Revelation and read those chapters and harmonize them with this kind of an event. You see, I believe this is exactly what we're being Jesus is predicting here when he talks about the stars falling from the heavens. In 2013, a 60-foot meteor exploded over a city in Russia injuring 1,500 people and damaging 7,200 buildings in six cities. That happened in Russia back in 2013. Did you know that last month, on October 12th, a 90-foot meteor, bigger than the one that hit Russia, an asteroid dubbed TC4 buzzed our planet. It came within an eighth of the distance between us and the moon. 
I'm telling you, it's as if God is firing warning shots across our bow. Rolf Denzing, head of the European Space Program, he said he didn't lose any sleep over the latest near-Earth collision, but he did say this, it makes you wonder what will happen next time. June 30th each year, you probably don't celebrate it in your home, but did you know it's Asteroid Day every June 30th? Astronomers are trying to raise awareness around the world of this very real cosmic threat. Well, let me tell you, Jesus warned us 2,000 years ago. And Jesus tells us, as the earth is reeling from these catastrophic events, these judgments, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Messiah follows the meteor. In the aftermath, Jesus will return. Revelation 19 says he'll be riding on a white horse. He's called faithful and true. He comes to judge and make war with sinners against his enemies. His robe is dipped in blood. His eyes are a flame of fire. His head holds many crowns. And written on his thigh is the phrase, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus will return. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Jews driven from Israel during this tribulation will be regathered back to their land. The elect will come home. You know, did you know that today more Jews live in New York City than in Israel? But when Jesus returns, the world's Jewry will be brought home, not on El Al, but on the wings of angels. Verse 28, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Now there are two interpretations here. One, a fig tree blossoms and produces in the spring of the year. Thus, when you see the fig tree bud, you know that winter is over and summer is coming. Perhaps all Jesus is saying here is as the fig tree is an indicator of spring, the signs that he's mentioned are indicators of the end of the age. Perhaps that's just all he meant. But there is another more provocative interpretation. In the Old Testament, the fig tree was a symbol for Israel. Recall just the day before now in this narrative, Jesus cursed a fig tree as a symbol of Israel's spiritual barrenness. It withered up and died. Thus some see in this parable and the budding of the fig tree a prophecy of the rebirth of the nation of Israel. Jesus may be saying, when you see the rebirth of Israel, know that my coming and these final judgments are near. Of course, even if this is not what he means here, it is taught in other places in Scripture. The rebirth of the Jewish nation after 2,000 years in dispersion is a modern miracle and a sure sign that Jesus is returning soon. But what's most provocative about what Jesus says here is what he says next, verse 30. For assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means Pass away till all these things take place. In other words, the generation that sees the fig tree bud will be the last generation. And Israel has risen from the ashes, guys, in our generation. 
This could mean that you and I are the rapture generation. This is exciting. And verse 31 reminds us that his promises are sure. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. It's more likely that the sun won't rise tomorrow than for Jesus' promises to fail. Now beware lest we make a common mistake. There have been folks who have taken this parable as the rebirth of the nation Israel, and they've tried to calculate the day of the Lord's return. But you can't do that. For nowhere does the Bible tells us what constitutes a generation. Is it 40 years? Is it 70 years? Even 100 years? We don't know. In fact, I could make a case for all three, 40, 70, and 100. And when do you start to count? On May 15, 1948, when Israel declared their statehood? Or maybe on June the 6th, 1967, when she regained control of Jerusalem? Or could it be a future date when uh, the Muslims are driven off the Temple Mount and the Jews once again worship there on their sacred ground? When, when, does it, when is, are the parameters? We don't know. When it comes to Jesus' return, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 1 does tell us that we can know the times and the seasons, but nobody knows the day or the hour. He says in verse 32, Jesus says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. While on earth not even Jesus knew. I think it's safe to say Jesus is against date setting. But he wants us to get set and ready. The Bible assures us before Jesus returns to earth, he will return for his church. And this is why Jesus says in verse 33, Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. Get ready, get set, for we don't know the go time. Now remember, Mark chapter 13 records a sermon that we call the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is preaching a sermon here. He isn't laying out a timeline. He's discussing the judgments that are going to precede his return. And then like a sermon, he gives an invitation. Now some folks read this chapter as a chronology. And they feel forced to place the rapture after his return, since that's how it's, so that's the sequence that he follows here in this chapter. But they mis, and they mistake the ingathering of the Jews in verse 27 for the rapture. But the text doesn't require that interpretation. Jesus tells us what will happen, and then he invites us to escape the rapture in the rapture. In other words, he, he paints the sermon. He talks about what's going to happen, how all this is going to transpire. And then he comes at the end and he says, look, you don't have to go through this. If you want to escape, be ready. Be looking for me. Be ready when I come. He says, get right and you won't get left. In verse 34, Jesus tells us a final parable. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. For what I say to you, I say to all, watch. 
Again, he closes his sermon with an invitation, like most preachers do. He says, stay awake, be alert. Let's be ready to meet Jesus at a moment's notice. It might even be today. Chapter 14. After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. Now recall what Jesus did that week that angered the Jews. Remember, first of all, he drove the crooked priests out of the temple. He embarrassed the Jews who had tried to trap him with their theological brain teasers. He outwitted them. He told them that God was going to take away their authority and give it to others. And then, with a parting shot, Jesus blasted their hypocrisy, called them all kinds of names. It was an embarrassing week to be a Jewish leader, trust me. And these powerful men, they left the temple on Tuesday, defeated and discredited. Now they were plotting a murder. There was one problem, though. The common people loved Jesus. And at the time, Jerusalem was full of his his admirers. The city of Jerusalem had a typical population of around 50,000 people. But during the Passover, it swelled to a quarter of a million. Jesus' enemies needed to strike before the feast at night under the cover of darkness. They needed to fly under the radar if they were going to accomplish their diabolical deed. They figured that If they did, if all came together, Jesus would be dead by morning light. Well, the scene shifts now in verse 3. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, Jesus had now gone back to Bethany. As he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. John 12 says that this was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Remember, Mary was always worshiping at Jesus' feet. We all need to be like Mary. At the time, it was a common custom to invest your wealth in costly perfumes. These expensive fragrances were imported from India, and they were very, very spendy. This vial that hung around Mary's neck was probably worth a year's wages to her. There is even the possibility that this constituted Mary's dowry or her ticket to marriage. The dowry was the treasure that accompanied the bride. When love wasn't enough to motivate a man to marry a woman, a dowry sort of sweetened the pot. It was the down payment on her upkeep. In other words, a woman in those days came with a 401k. Not a bad deal. (laughs) But notice what Mary does with her vial, her, her expensive vial. Then she broke the flask and she poured it on Jesus' feet. Can you imagine? If the perfume was her dowry, Mary is in essence telling Jesus that she's willing to forego marriage if necessary, pledge all her love to Jesus. Mary's heart, her allegiance, her loyalty was reserved wholly and only for her king. What a beautiful display of worship. That's not how a couple of the disciples took it. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. 
and they criticized her sharply. Understand what's happening here. Pragmatism is trying to snuff out Mary's praise. You can hear the mumbling. With the needs in this world, the hospitals and the soup kitchens and the missions and the homes for unwed mothers and all the political action committee, why waste this money on worship? Hey, we need to realize that the value of our worship is never measured practically, but spiritually. Did you know that worship is like buying roses for your wife? On a practical level, roses are a terrible waste of money. Just a terrible throwaway of money. But relationally, what a gesture. And the value of worship is only understood. It's only appreciated by lovers. It's love, not logic, that drives true worship. Worship is never utilitarian. Worship is always an expression of the heart. It's the passion that we have for Jesus that explodes from our chest and races to the throne of God. This is what worship is all about. Jesus understood Mary's heart. and He comes to her defense, verse 6. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. Jesus loves our worship. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Remember, perfumes were placed on a corpse to mask the odor of the rotting flesh. But Mary believed what Jesus had said that his body would not see corruption. She trusted his promise to rise the third day, and that's why she anointed him before his burial. She realized it wouldn't be necessary afterwards. He was going to be resurrected. Jesus had told his disciples many times that he'd be crucified and three days later rise from the dead. But apparently the idea sailed over everyone's head except Mary. She seems to have been the lone believer. And we wonder why. Could it be there is a close association between revelation and adoration? Could it be that the person who sits at Jesus' feet in worship is the person who sees truths that other folks miss? Worship breeds communication with God and insight about God. It's worship that opens up our eyes to the things of God. Jesus says of Mary's act, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And we are fulfilling his prophecy tonight. The smell soon dissipated in the room, but the deed became a sweet fragrance that emanates forever. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. John 12 tells us Judas was the chief antagonist of Mary's worship. Ironically, Judas means praise, but he knew nothing of it. Author Kent Hughes labels Judas as the man who knew the price of everything and the value of nothing. Judas was the antithesis of a true worshiper. John 12 informs us that it was Judas who suggested that the money from the perfume, that it might be given to the poor. 
But that wasn't his real motive. For John tells us, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was, what was put in it. In other words, Judas had been ripping off the kitty. And apparently Mary's worship made Judas so mad. He thought, man, if I can't get that money, then I'll get it another way. And thus he went to the priest to betray them for 30 pieces of silver. Verse 11, and when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. If Judas couldn't have the 300 denarii from the perfume, he'd settle for the 30 pieces of silver. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? Now understand, a Passover Seder, it doesn't just happen. Like Thanksgiving dinner, a lot of preparation goes into Passover. You take a lamb, or in some people's case, ponies. Anyway, that's, that's what I did this year for Thanksgiving. I got ponies for my grandkids. But anyway, you take a lamb to the temple. You have it slaughtered. Then you go to the market. You purchase the unleavened bread, and you get the bitter herbs. And then you need a meeting room. And then you have to go into that meeting room, and you have to purge it from leaven. You have to get all the yeast out of the room. Then the meal has to be cooked, and the table has to be decorated. Here Jesus makes his preparations, and he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Now understand, it was women, not men, that carried water carriers in those days. Thus, this man would have been conspicuous. And so wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. Tradition says the house belonged to the family of a man named John Mark, the author of the book that we're reading. Now in the evening, Jesus came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? Notice everyone didn't immediately point to G Judas. Notice that. And this speaks volumes of how Jesus had treated his enemy before this night. He had known from the beginning that Judas was the man who would betray him. Yet Jesus loved Judas. Oh, if it had been me in Jesus' place, there would have been no doubt in anybody's mind the culprit's identity. The disciples would have concluded, well, let's just think about this. For three years now, Judas has been on permanent latrine duty. He's the one who always has to collect the firewood, and he's the guy who gets the cold food, and he's the guy who rides in the back of the bus, and on and on. Judas would have been in my doghouse from the start, but apparently that's not how Jesus treated him. Jesus even honored Judas by making him their treasurer. 
Apparently, Jesus cared for Judas, and he tried to give him every opportunity to repent and to avoid his destiny. It's interesting. Rather than suspect Judas, the disciples doubted their own hearts. Notice that. More than one man asked, is it I? They were conscious of their own evil, and they suspected themselves before they even thought of Judas. But he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. And for Judas to have dipped his bread in the oil at the same time Jesus dipped his, it means that Judas was sitting adjacent to Jesus at the table. Imagine this. Judas is sitting in the place of honor at the master's right hand when suddenly his treacherous heart gets revealed. And as Judas walks out into the darkness to do the dirty deed, Jesus says, The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Jesus' betrayal and death fulfilled a divine prophecy. It was God's will. But God's sovereignty doesn't eliminate our responsibility. Judas was responsible for his rejection of Jesus. Today, he sits in a hot spot in hell. Verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Of course, unleavened bread is cooked on a griddle, which makes it bumpy. The griddle also leaves stripes and tiny little pinholes in the bread. And this is the perfect picture of the crucified Christ. In fact, if you want to see a portrait of Jesus, look at the matzah. He is without leaven. He's unleavened bread. Leaven is a symbol of sin. Jesus is without sin. Isaiah 53 says that his face was beaten and bruised, bumpy. His back was striped by Roman lictors. Holes were made by the nails that the executioners drove through his hands and his feet. And with the spear, they thrust through Jesus' side. Remember, the bread Jesus and his men shared was part of a 1,500-year-old tradition. It reminded the Jews of the faith they had in Egypt, that God promised that they would leave the next day. So when they cooked the bread that night, they left out the leaven, trusting, that, trusting God that it wouldn't have time to rise. Now Jesus is giving new meaning to this old tradition. He says, I am the bread of life. Jesus himself is the satisfier of our soul. He is our hope. He is the object of our faith. Through his broken body, we'll find an exodus from our sin. You know, in the Passover Seder, unleavened bread is called the afikoman, which in the Hebrew means dessert. And it's eaten after the lamb as a treat. And this is true of Jesus, is it not? Usually what's good for us tastes like cardboard. You ever been on one of those diets? You know, if it's good for you, just spit it out. If it it doesn't taste good, just, if it tastes good, spit it out. You ever been on one of those diets? It's not good for you if it tastes good. It's got to be, it's got to taste horrible to be good for you. That's the diet plan most of us adhere to, but not so with Jesus. Understand, Jesus isn't just good for us. He is also what tastes good. And this is the wonderful discovery you find in the Christian life. You usually come to him because you know he's good for you. 
But once you embrace him and once you begin to feed at his table, you realize he's not just good for me, but he tastes good too. He becomes the joy and delight of your soul. And then Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This was the third of four cups in the Passover Seder. It's called the cup of redemption. For 1,500 years, this cup took them back to the eve of the Exodus. A lamb's blood was spread on the doorposts and the headers of the homes. Death saw the blood and thus passed over the house. But now Jesus redefines the wine. It no longer represents the blood of the lamb that was slain. Verse 24, and he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. From now on, the wine they drink will speak of the blood of Jesus. For when his blood is applied to our hearts, death passes over us. And realize, the Hebrews living in Egypt at the time, it didn't matter the worthiness or the morality of the folks who were inside the house. All that mattered was whether the blood was on the doorposts or the headers of the home. Did they believe enough to spread the blood over the door? And in the exact same way, you and I are granted salvation, not because of our morality or because of our religiosity or because of our worthiness. It all comes down to, are we trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ? Are we trusting enough to apply his blood to our hearts? Notice Jesus said of his sacrifice, this is my blood of the new covenant. In the Old Testament, whenever God entered a special relationship or a covenant with his people, he ratified it with blood. In Ezekiel's day, when the Jews were still in Babylon, God promised to forgive their sin and be their God, and he called it the new covenant. Now Jesus pays for this new covenant with his own blood. This means that we ultimately enter the covenant, not by our good work, but by the work of Jesus on the cross. Let's remember, it's not what we do, but it's what he's done. It's not what we do, but it's who we know. Godliness is not the result of our trying, but our trusting. It's not grit and elbow grease, but it's grace through faith. This is how a man is made right with God. It's the new covenant. Our status with God is no longer dependent on our goodness and good works. We stay right with God. We get right with God and stay right with God because of the goodness and work of Jesus and our trust in him. Well, Jesus says in verse 25, Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When a baseball team wins four of seven games and the pennant, the locker room erupts in a champagne celebration. You've seen these things happen. But they got to win those four games first, don't they? If they win three and the other team wins that final game, they put the champagne on ice. And this is what Jesus does here. On the cross, he paid the price. He won the victory. But our enemy is still at work. There are battles that still need to be won. Until the final victory takes place, the champagne is on ice. The corks won't start popping until we get to heaven, in other words. And that's why he says, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until I do it with you in my kingdom. Finally, in verse 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And this is such an intriguing verse to me. 
Jesus sang a hymn. What a thrill it would be to have been able to hear Jesus sing. Wouldn't you have loved that? You talk about going back in the Bible to one particular episode. I'm not so sure I wouldn't do this one. I'd love to hear Jesus sing. One day I'm going to get that opportunity. That's just one more reason I'm excited about getting to heaven, to get to hear my Jesus sing. Well, Lord, thank you.